0: Welcome to Writer Six of the Trade. I'm to Send with co host Carol Miller tonight author Jake at And he'll be sharing some insights about how to submit a manuscript to an agent or publisher that relates to today's best writing practices with a storyline that appeals to readers. Welcome, J Guest. Jay, are you there? Jay? Hmm.
1: I don't know whether we have our guest tonight.
0: Well, in the meantime, hopefully he'll recall in if you get disconnected. Um, yeah,
1: there, um, there's a number dialed in, but it's all one 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 one.
0: That's me. Oh.
1: Uh, there was another one that just dropped off. Yeah, that might, off. Have been,
0: uh, might have been him and dropped off.
1: Area code 313. I, I made his mic live.
2: Here he is. There he is. I hear you, but apparently you couldn't uh, hear me. I, I called back.
0: Ah, perfect. Thank you for calling. Uh, The modern technology has its fallacies. (laughs) It does. Uh, Anyway, um, while we were going through the technical difficulties, um, I informed the audience that you were going to be our uh, guest tonight. And is it okay if we just call you Jay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. And before we get started, Jay, would you be so kind as to give our uh, our listeners some information as, uh, as far as uh, learning more about you, such as a website?
2: Uh, yes, sure. Um, I can be found uh, at www.jconradguest.com. It will uh, give you a little bit of information about all of my published novels. You can read excerpts and uh, follow a link over to my blog and um uh i uh, also have a page an author page on amazon.com you can purchase all my novels there and you can find me at uh, my publisher's website as well uh which is indigo c s e a indigo one word and uh you can purchase all my books from brick and mortar bookstores most of them i think will order them for you if they don't carry them okay great oh
1: okay so we're going to be um just to refresh uh talking about how to submit a manuscript to an agent or publisher tonight and and um kind of get some best practices advice from jay so before we begin let me tell you a little bit about Jay. His first novel January's Paradigm was published in 1998 and it featured his character Joe January. Entertainment Monthly in Ann Arbor, Michigan wrote that readers will not only will not be able to put it down. Now there are two other novels in the series, One Hot January and January's thaw. And his book, um, Backstop, A Baseball Love Story in Nine Innings, was nominated as a 2010 Michigan Notable Book, and the Lewis Department of Humanities at the Illinois Institute of Technology adopted it as required reading for their spring 2011 course, Baseball, America's Literary (laughs) Pastime. So continuing in the baseball theme, Apex Reviews hailed his book, The Cobb Legacy, which is a murder mystery written around the shooting death of baseball legend Ty Cobb's father by his own mother um or Ty Cobb's mother as they they labeled it an eye-opening tale of drama, scandal and intrigue highlighting the living breathing history of a fatal, fatally flawed intrepid folk hero. It's a nice mouthful and nice nice review there too, Jay. His other books include A, Retrospective, A Retrospect in Death and 500 Miles to Go.
0: Uh, Jay, since our topic tonight involves walking the line between current submission guidelines for agents and publishers while appealing to the reader, I'd like to talk about your latest book, A World Without Music. Now, PTSD is something that wasn't acknowledged for years, and now is a topic discussed almost daily. A World Without Music is speculative fiction set against the backdrop of romance, posing the question, can a Gulf War veteran suffering from PTSD leave behind his past to find the music that will make his life worth living? What inspired you to write this, and did the current PTSD awareness have anything to do with that
2: decision? Yes, it did. Uh, uh, our troops are are returning from Iraq and Afghanistan with missing limbs and, and suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And too many of these young people are unable to fit back into society. Many end up homeless, and others are committing suicide. And so in writing A World Without Music, I, I wanted to draw attention to this issue.
1: That's... Uh... Yeah, well, it is it is a a, a current concern. Do you think that something that that's something authors are incorporating in the books um, a little bit more applicable than in years past, when people are uh, you know sort of looking at the headlines and, and and writing books around those topics? Because you wrote your book as fiction, so give it, give our listeners a little bit of detail about how you how you worked through that. the Reality and fiction.
2: Well, I'm not aware of other novels that are written around this as a theme other than those that are a war theme. Jarhead comes to mind, but that's nonfiction that was made into a motion picture as well. I built the story around Reagan. He's a veteran of the first Gulf War who's unable to cope with the vision of the remains of a Marine he brought back from the desert, mutilated in the worst way imaginable, and eventually it costs him his marriage. His wife leaves him, and he plays bass guitar in a jazz quartet, seeks refuge from his nightmares and broken marriage in music, and he loses himself in his music and has several meaningless affairs. He also contemplates eating his Glock on occasion, but it's always music (laughs) that keeps him from taking that final step when his ex-wife decides to return, come back into his life, his latest affair, well, it kind of turns into a fatal attraction. But in the end, Reagan learns that his PTSD doesn't have to define who he is. Now, when you're
0: talking about a topic like this, are there any concerns an author should have in dealing with it, both in the writing and in pitching the book? And as a follow-up to that, Do you have to have, uh, you believe, any firsthand knowledge of what it's like to have PTSD, or is there enough reference material out there to create a believable character in situations?
2: Well, dealing with a topic like PTSD, I think, requires a great deal of sensitivity. Um, Writers are told to write what they know, but I believe a writer should know what they write. And you've also heard writers... uh, should always show and not tell. So I think this is particularly important in this instance. You can't just tell the reader that your character suffers from PTSD. You must show the effects of it in his nightmares, his actions and dialogue, and in his relationships. Um, my first hand knowledge came from my dad, who served in the South Pacific during World War II. This was before PTSD was ever defined as a malady of war and uh, Dad shared very little of his experience on Okinawa with me, but something about him was off. Uh, He retired from the Corps before he met and married my mother, so I never knew him as a Marine. I learned more about his service from an older cousin who recalled her grandmother reading a letter that, in the letter, Dad said he wrote on the back of a fallen Marine and that for years he couldn't stand the sight of ketchup on the kitchen table. I asked him several times you know the last time just a few months before he passed away to share some of his experiences and he he refused he just uh, whatever he did whatever he saw whatever he experienced he took with him so the majority of people i think you know are totally unaware have no concept of what we're asking our young men and women to do when we send them overseas to to fight a war and uh i also read with the old breed written by Eugene Sledge, who also served on Okinawa, and it is considered one of the finest accounts of warfare written by an enlisted man. It, there's just a, I think a, there's a lot of material available. You just Google PTSD or or go to Amazon and you know do a couple of keyword searches for books on war and the effects of war. You just need to know where to look.
1: All right. I had an uncle who was in the Battle of the Bulge in World War Two, and um, he just never wanted to talk about it. He had, some of my other uncles were also in the war, but none none saw, I mean, the Battle of the Bulge was a, for people that don't know, was a big tank battle, and it was basically tanks versus infantry. And um, he he had a great sense of humor, but he was much the same way, like he didn't, he, he, at family reunions, he didn't like um, meatloaf with ketchup on it. He thought that that was, he always turned away from that, and and he, he had little quirks about him, and he would just get really, really distant. His eyes, sometimes he would just not be talking about the war, but you could tell he was thinking about it or, or remembering something. His eyes would get all glassy and far away. So, I mean, I, I I agree that there is a lot of material out there, but uh, also sometimes, you know, we can look at our own lives and people in our own family and and kind of see what they went through. But anyway, on a lighter note, you've used sports-related themes in some of your books, um, baseball in particular, uh, in racing in 500 miles to go, and you've also um, used themes of dreams and death and discovery and romance is there a story behind why these aspects of life appeal to you?
2: Well, uh, as a boy I wanted to play professional baseball, but my parents had other plans for me and, and dissuaded me. Uh, you have to remember that this was the before the era of big salaries, so they didn't think I could earn a good living from it. And today I'm wondering if I could have had a career in the major leagues. So in backstop uh a Baseball Love Story in Nine Innings, I wrote the autobiography I wish I could have written for myself, starting with my own youth, but where I allowed my parents to steer me uh, down a different path, backstop makes his dream come true. And uh, it's also a romance in there, uh, and uh, it's kind of a light fare and a quick read uh, for the Cobb legacy. Well, I read three biographies on Ty Cobb, who played for my Detroit Tigers uh, at the turn of the 19th century, and I watched the movie Cobb, which starred Tommy Lee Jones in the lead role, and I became fascinated with Cobb, uh, what drove him both to greatness between the chalk lines as well as to become the monster that he was off the field. And the protagonist in the Cobb legacy is Cagney Nowak, and he's writing a novel around the 1905 shooting death of Ty Cobb's father, William, by his mother, shortly before Ty was called up by the Tigers. And uh, although she was acquitted by an all-male jury on the grounds that the incident was accidental, the townspeople of Royston, Georgia, thought otherwise. So that right there was enough to inspire a novel. And when uh, Agni begins to relive the night of the shooting in his dreams more than a century later. And in the guise of Amanda Cobb, he is led to discover his father's deepest secret. But it's more than a mystery. It's a story of a man's efforts to connect with his dying father, a World War II veteran patterned after my own dad, and to come to terms with his obsession over Ty Cobb's legacy, as well as his own adulterous affair and impending divorce, while doubting that love with an old friend can ever be his. It's like all my novels, it's a very non-traditional romance. And uh, I grew up during the golden age of automobile racing, and, and I've attended more than 20 Indy 500s. So for 500 miles to go, I wanted to pay tribute to that era of motorsports, the 50s and 60s, before it became a science, and, and the drivers became spokespersons for their sponsors it's a romance that spans four decades. It's about the importance of and the risks associated with the pursuit of dreams. Because oftentimes when our dreams cause angst to our loved ones, they often become nightmares. Again, a romance, but not your typical bodice ripper with Fabio gracing the cover. <laughs> uh,
0: Jay, I'm, I'm curious. um, about your your Joe January character that you came up with for your first book. And at that time, did you plan to write a series? Was that always in your mind, or did, did the series come after you wrote the first book? And we're talking about appealing to readers, and series do appeal to readers. Was there thought about the Joe January books relative to following writing practices acceptable to agents
2: and publishers, while also making it a grabber. January's Paradigm is my first novel. It's the first in the January trilogy, and I started it as therapy in the aftermath of a bloodied and bruised heart. It's about a novelist who is enjoying the fruits of success uh, that includes a best-selling novel featuring a hard-nosed detective circa 1947 named Joe January, and a lucrative contract for the sequel, but... His world comes crashing down around him when he witnesses his wife's infidelity. And as I progressed with the first draft, I began to envision this trilogy, with the second and third books being those that Robert Porter, the protagonist in January's Paradigm, wrote. January's Paradigm is a standalone book, while One Hot January and January's Thaw compose a science fiction diptych written around time travel and an alternate reality and conspiracy theory based on how much President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill knew about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. I would have thought that a series would sell well, but I discovered when I started submitting that most agents and publishers weren't interested, uh, largely because I was an unknown writer. One publisher suggested I combine One Hot January and January's Thaw into one book and and cut about 30,000 words from from the one volume, and I refrained from doing that. And I finally found publication with an independent press, and the rest is history. By the way, the name Joe January is a, a character John Wayne portrayed in Legend of the Lost. It was not one of the Duke's best films. His co-star with Sophia was Sophia Loren, and they had absolutely no on-screen chemistry. But when I saw the movie as a boy, I I just thought that was the coolest name. So it seemed fitting to name my protagonist, Joe January, who is described as a rather indignant Humphrey Bogart, a private investigator, circa 1947. Hmm.
1: So you're basically writing mysteries with other underlying factors. So what do you think your books offer that others in the same genre don't?
2: I don't write genre specific novels. At least that's what I always tell people. And and that probably hinders me because most readers, I think, prefer genre specific stories. I I tend to mix and match. And I like to think my work appeals to a more discerning audience. And I don't want to insult anybody, but uh, more literary, a preference for more literary writing like those. who like to think and read not just to escape into a formula of fiction or a genre, but those who prefer to read about true-to-life characters dealing with the everyday issues of love, loss, infidelity, regret, and redemption, uh, death and dying? You know, as authors, we all have some part of the writing process
0: we really like. For some, it's coming up with the plot. For others, it's having characters tell you where they want to go. And for most, it's seeing the finished product.
2: What is your favorite aspect of the writing process? Hands down, I, love, I just love the creative process. And uh, early on in, in my career, I fretted over publication. Each rejection letter ended up with me questioning my resolve as well as my ability, and, and my writing suffered for it. It was, it was just easy to let days and weeks go by sometimes without setting down a single word. So when I finally learned to just enjoy the process and let go of the fear of rejection, I finally became a writer. And perhaps not so surprisingly, once I did that, publication followed. Uh, I find inspiration in writing about everyday people going about their everyday lives. Uh, A reader once said of my work that it was gritty, entertaining, real, romance for the non-romantic, and I count that as one of the nicest comments about my work I've ever gotten. I find that writing teaches me a lot about myself, and what could be more inspirational than that? As for what motivates me, I'm motivated by a need to connect with readers as well as a love for language. I found nothing more gratifying than arranging words on a blank monitor, knowing I've crafted a great sentence, and engaging Exchange of dialogue or a memorable scene. Of course, a cup of coffee uh, and a fine cigar go a long way to jump start, jump start me in the morning too. <laughs>
1: well, we're all aware how much the publishing business has changed over the past few years. We've talked about it a good bit on the show, but along with that, things were bound to also change in the acquisition process. So, what changes have you seen? and how objective do you think acquisition editors are um, in in today's market?
2: You're right. It's it's changed a great deal, and it continues to change faster than this writer can keep up. Uh, digital technology allows anyone to see their work in print, whether or not it's deserving. The rejection letter is is a thing of the past. Many writers are too quick to self-publish. They get three rejection letters. They're going to self-publish. They don't stop to think about how they can improve their manuscript or their craft. Learn from the rejection letter. There was a reason for it. Uh, A few years ago, I read in the forum that the new publishing model is to simply upload your first draft to a website, let your readers tell you what's wrong with it, and then revise, upload a new draft, and repeat until Random House comes calling. And to me, I'm sorry, that's just wrong. I want my readers to see the best. Possible product that I can produce, which is usually about the twentieth draft. <laughs> uh, about a half million books found their way into print last year, believe it or not. Most of those, obviously, are self-published, and everyone today thinks they can write a bestseller without having to learn craft. And, and there are just enough success stories to give hope to new writers that they too can win the lotto and get signed with a major publisher. And it just—it doesn't happen that often. Maybe. Once or twice every two million novels, and uh, you know as, as far as the objectivity that you spoke of, I'd, I'd say acquisitions are more subjective than objective. Uh, publishing has always been a business concern with bottom line, and that's probably more so today than ever before. Publishers, the major houses, especially the big five, and agents alike look for the big kill, the surefire next bestseller a novel that has the potential to be sold to Hollywood to become next summer's blockbuster movie. Hence, we have the best practices of contemporary fiction writing. Eliminate backstory. Drop it into the narrative someplace. Minimize your use of adverbs and adjectives. They take readers out of the story. Delete anything you think the reader might skip over, like long paragraphs of description. Anything written with an artistic flair is the author's attempt to butt into the story, so eliminate it. Write at a sixth grade level in pastels, painting by numbers, and be careful not to go outside the lines. That's all fine if you want to be a mercenary and and write for a paycheck, but there are a lot of gifted writers going unnoticed because they choose to go against some of those best practices. And, And I write the type of stories that I enjoy reading. I love language, the turn of a phrase, how something is written is important to me, and in my own reading I don't mind stopping once in a while to admire the beauty of a sentence or a paragraph, going back to reread it, marvel over it, wish I'd written it. But agents right. and acquisition yeah. editors seem to criticize that style for taking the reader out of the story. And I don't know what's wrong with that. Commercials take me out of my favorite nighttime TV dramas, but I don't enjoy the program any less, nor do the critics pan the program for the commercials. <laughs> Uh before I get on to the next
0: question, Jay, I see we have a caller on the line. Maybe Eric could uh, could see if there's uh, somebody with a question or comment.
1: Okay. Hold on. I am trying to hello. Hello caller. Hello? Hi. you have a question for tonight's show or Jay?
3: Yes. Um I'm wondering, because I know that some of his work has addressed the issue of what ha- what might have happened it was in the January series uh, if Hitler had won the, the World War II, and I've been picking up and noticing a lot of stuff about that, and I think you've even a movie out about it, um, and I wanted him to speak to that.
2: I'm not quite Uh-oh. sure what the question was. I had a hard <laughs> um- time hearing the.
1: You, you wrote a novel that alluded to the possibility or the alternate um, reality of Hitler having Germany having won World War II. And oh yeah, yeah. She, she says that she's noticed that is sort of a trend, and she's right. There is a movie coming out along those lines, so she wanted you to speak to that.
2: Yeah, maybe somebody read it. I um, <laughs> basically started. I started with the concept that. World War Two originally was won by by Germany, and that uh, Germany and Hitler went on to take over the world, and and that's you know the alternate history. But it's you know uh, a faction a hundred years later, a faction of uh, Nazis decide to go back in history to change history because they see the fallacy in Hitler's uh, plan to eradicate and exterminate other races. And so they come back to convince Churchill and Roosevelt to um, allow the attack on Pearl Harbor to take place so that America, the United States, would enter World War II uh, without Roosevelt could declare war without fear of political repercussions. So in the original story, um, or the original history, uh, Churchill discovered the Japanese decrypt. He passed it along to Roosevelt. Roosevelt was able to head off the raid on Pearl Harbor, and that delayed U.S. involvement in World War II long enough to become too late for Germany to be defeated in a land war. And so that's the concept of, you know, paradox of time travel, going back to change history and stepping on the butterfly and uh, changing the future. Does that answer your question,
1: Colin? Still there. Did did that answer your question,
3: ma'am? Oh, sorry. I hadn't read on. What I was asking was um, comments about the current um, stuff that's coming up more and more frequently about Hitler and what if he had won after all, and what would have happened. Because I see a lot more recently on that.
2: Yeah, I well, think there's there's,
1: a... there's some. There's been some recent information about Pearl Harbor and how much did Churchill and Roosevelt know, but. But what I, I I'm unless you do you understand her question, Jay? I don't really understand her question.
2: Well, I think there's a television series on, on uh one of the cable channels that deals with that. That it's a series based on the fact that Hitler won World War two. But I don't uh, I haven't I haven't seen it. Don't even know if I can get that channel, but I see it advertised from time to time and I don't know if there's a Time travel element. I think it, it takes place, you know, in current times, but uh, Nazi Germany is uh, is the lone superpower. So, yes, I, I guess you know. I mean, time travel is a popular theme in a lot of science fiction, not only novels but uh, TV shows and science fiction movies. So. It's it's just a fascinating. I've I've written a couple of novels with a time travel uh, theory.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about playing with it myself.
0: Um, okay, so, well, it's I'm raised not, an interesting point, uh, caller. Thanks so much for calling in. Yeah.
3: Certainly, my pleasure. I, I love <laughs> hey. reading Joe's stuff.
0: Okay, thanks again. Have a great night, ma'am. Thank
3: Thank you. you. I'll continue listening. Uh,
0: Getting back to uh, a question I had, Jay, let's zero in on something really specific on tonight's topic. What advice can you offer to writers concerning the aspect of submitting a manuscript to an agent or publisher and how that relates to appealing to the consumer? Can you give our listeners some tips based upon what you've learned along the way? And before you start your answer, I just want to tell you we've uh, somehow, this first that half hour has slipped by already. Yeah,
1: we are no longer broadcasting,
0: broadcasting live, but uh, your answer will be recorded and will be available on the archive show and uh, a show that you can download for personal use if you'd like. So I just want to let you know that even though we've, run out of airtime uh your answer will be fully recorded and available uh in the archives so uh, sure. go ahead please jay
2: all right um you know it's, it's a tough question to answer because uh as i mentioned earlier it's it's a really subjective process perhaps it's it's so subjective that it's become too objective if that makes sense it, agents and acquisitions editors that need to be engaged from the very first sentence. And if they're not, they won't finish reading the manuscript. They move on to the next submission. And and the trouble is, you know, I've read some some novels that started out with a bang, you know, from that very first sentence, and and others, and faded. And then I've read others that started slowly and finished strong. And, And, you know, the ones that I remember best for the right reasons after I finished closing the cover for the last time, are those that finished strongly, and the argument is that if the consumer isn't hooked by the first paragraph, they're not going to finish the read, and I can't argue against that. Other than to say that that argument becomes moot if, at the end, the consumer is disappointed and, and opts never to read another novel by that author. And I think you know there's there's a fine line that we walk. Yes, it's important to engage the reader early. But as a consumer of fiction myself, I don't like to feel as if I'm being manipulated, that that the writer is simply employing a string of bells and whistles to keep me turning the pages, stringing me along to get to the end. Yes, it's important to identify your audience, to write to them. A writer, however, must stay true to themselves. And Creative writing courses today teach that style is bad, but it isn't. It isn't bad. Isn't that what part a part of what made Stephen King a household name? Uh, Raymond Chandler is considered one of the greatest stylists of the 20th century, and that's a bad thing? Uh, one of my favorite authors from my youth, Samuel R. Delaney, who wrote science fiction, he's uh, now a retired professor of English and creative writing at Temple University, said that above all things, the story, the poem, the text is and is only what its words make happen in the reader's mind and all readers are not the same and and, uh, truer words I don't think have ever been spoken. I think the industry has gone too far in championing what they believe will sell. You could ask any ten readers what engaged them in a novel and you'll likely receive ten different answers. Some like to be given on the very first page a physical description of the protagonist. Well, Others prefer to have appearance left to their imagination. Some writers employ a gross, realist approach in describing a character. Tell me, that doesn't take a reader out of the story? Others employ a more subtle approach, which is what I kind of do. I I make it part of dialogue or an action. He moved a strand of Guinness-colored hair from away from her face. Or I think that dimple in your chin is adorable sometimes complemented by an introspective thought, not a Kirk Douglas crevasse left by the hammer and chisel of a stonemason, but the graceful, sensuous recess, as might be found on a sculpture of Helen of Troy on display at a museum. I have an excerpt from A World Without Music. Did you want me to include that? Yes,
0: please. Please, Jay.
2: Yeah, it kind of talks about description and and narrative. Um, It's a favorite scene of mine from that novel. Dropping into a chair at the table, opposite the door wall to his desk, Reagan considered the drapes, drawn closed against the rising sun. They were blue. Not in the tone or shade of a John Lee hooker tune, or in the term one might use to describe their disposition to their physician when seeking medication for depression which is really no color at all but a mood. Not a navy or a midnight blue. Not a Miles Davis kind of blue. Not the blue that accompanies the maze in the University of Michigan school colors. Not the blue eyes of a Siberian husky or a sky blue. But a sapphire blue. Neither annoyingly cheerful, nor that draws attention to itself and away from the other furnishings in the room. Pleasant. Soothing. They were a blue that complements both a morning cup of coffee or tea, Although Reagan believed, as Oliver Wendell Holmes had written, that the morning cup of coffee has an exhilaration about it that the cheering influence of the afternoon or evening cup of tea cannot be expected to reproduce. Reagan had not been cheerful, not in the morning or any other time of day, for more years than he could recall, as well as an early evening glass of bourbon. They were the color blue that invites one nearer, if only to draw them wider, to admire the panoramic view on the other side of the glass, or to let more Sunday morning light into the room, to chase away the previous night's bête noire. Trouble was, the beast could always be counted on to return the next night. Now, some critics will say that that's just too long, too detailed, but I think it lends a great deal of, for want of a better word, color. And it gives the reader a great deal of insight into the character, his state of mind. He obviously lives alone. He's depressed. He's given the long, introspective conversations with himself. The references to John Lee Hooker and Miles Davis reveal that he's a music lover, that he's familiar with Oliver Wendell Holmes, shows that he's well-read. And, of course, that final sentence provides a lot of foreshadowing. Some readers will eat it up. Others might skim over it because it's too long. They're lost. Again, Samuel R. Delaney. But the point is, when the writer turns to address the reader, he or she must not only speak to me, naively dazzled and wholly enchanted by the complexities of the trickery, and thus all but incapable of any criticism, so that, indeed, he can claim, if he likes, priestly contact with the greater powers that hurled at him by the muse, Travel the parsecs from the universe's furthest shoals, cleaving stars on the way to shatter the specific moment and sizzle his brains in their pan, rattle his teeth in their sockets, make his muscles howl against his bones, and to galvanize his pen so the ink bubbles and blisters on the nib. But he or she must also speak to my student, for whom it was an okay story with just so much description. When I first started writing, it was Delaney I tried to emulate. And it's just another, what I just shared with you is another thing that I I read it from time to time. I think, gosh, I wish I'd written that. But in summary, I don't think a novel has yet been written that pleases everyone who's ever read it. Hemingway had his detractors. It's a tightrope that we walk, writing what we like to read ourselves while trying to appeal to the consumer
1: yeah i think I think that's right and and getting back to our our topic tonight of of your personal insights about how to submit a manuscript to an agent or publisher what i think um I'm really hearing in in light of like these so called best practices that the big five seem to want i think and tell me if this is 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 on the mark or not? That you're really saying, Jay, that you've got to write for yourself. You've got to. You've got to write, not in a cookie cutter kind of way to please somebody else, like you were saying, just to earn a paycheck, but to have that love of the written word and 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 the craft of telling the story in such a way that it it fires you up in the morning when you wake up and you're dying to tell your story that's trying to get out of you in your way, not in some perceived way that you imagine someone else wants to see it. Is that right?
2: Well, yes. I mean, but I'm speaking for myself. There's nothing wrong with taking that cookie-cutter approach if if that's what you want. If, if, you know, you want to write for a paycheck and, you know, you're turning out – Novel every three months, and it's you know rehashing the previous novel, just changing the names, of the setting, and, and a couple of plot twists. I mean, there's there's certainly a market for that kind of novel, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just,
1: yeah, I didn't mean in, in a judgmental mean, way. I mean, like your yeah, your personal take on it is like right yeah, yourself. you know,
2: I mean, uh, I the first. Display I bypass in any brick-and-mortar bookstore that I frequent is the bestseller table. Bestseller doesn't mean it's the best literature; it just means it's the most popular. And uh, you know, I've I've discovered some some great stories by some lesser-known authors that you know don't get the kind of uh, praise that Dan Brown gets, you know, or or Daniel oh. Steele or E.L. James. Right. Well, you know, things uh, keep
1: changing so fast. You you just have to keep up with what sells. So what's your take on that, Denny?
0: Well, I agree. I like what I'm I'm hearing. It's been uh, very informative. I I just like, as we're wrapping up here today, Jay, um, what did you do before you were a writer? Are there things in your background that have now become valuable in your stories? Or do you draw from reference materials, and other types of experiences?
2: Well, I haven't yet quit my J-job. Um, <laughs> so I'm a I'm a business writer and editor, both of which uh, have made me a better creative writer, I think. And, and uh, all of my stories seem to draw from my life, my own personal experiences to characters based on people that I know. My parents, both of them, have been deceased for more than 15 years. They show up in a lot of my fiction and, and non-fiction. It's my desire to keep them alive, I guess. But, you know, I also draw from reference material. I read three Cobb biographies, for instance, when I was writing the, the, the Cobb legacy, and I worked with someone from Columbia University in New York City while I was writing uh, the January books. She uh, provided a wealth of information about 1940s New York and uh the efforts of Columbia College uh their efforts to uh further or smash the atom in in uh searching for creation of the atomic bomb and uh, several other other items that were pertinent to the story so uh I I know what I write and I write what I know so there you go <laughs> perfect. Oh, you know,
0: uh we're uh we're just about out of time here. Would you yeah. uh, be so kind, Jay, is uh, before we wrap up to give uh, give the listeners your website information one more time?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh you can peek into my literary career at www.jconradguest.com. You can find all my titles on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and a variety of online retailers in both print and e-formats. Uh I think I, I mentioned earlier that most brick and mortar stores will order them for you. Um and you can find a lot of my short fiction and nonfiction online by simply Googling me. And from my website you can click a link which takes me over to my blog, my personal blog, and I also blog for I do a monthly blog for my publisher, Indigo C Press.
0: Great. Uh well, we're just about completely out of time now and uh for anyone interested in finding out more about me you can visit www.dennisengriffinbooks.biz and, and you can also find out uh find my books on most of the online online bookstores and Amazon Eric
1: Yeah I'm uh, pretty much the same way on Amazon and uh brick, some brick and mortar stores here in Las Vegas and LA for sure and then by order elsewhere um my main website these days is com, as in venice beach california and dude as in the big lebowski and
3: uh
1: <laughs> of
2: that movie
1: yeah that's <laughs> a great movie that's a great movie um it's, it works on so many different levels
2: <laughs>
1: pesos and and comedy and but uh well, thanks for for joining us tonight, Mr. Guest, being our guest, Mr. Guest. My pleasure. And uh, good night, everyone. Thanks,
0: guys. Yes, thank. You. Thank you very much, Jay.
1: You bet. And good have night. a great. Have a
0: great night. Good night, everyone.
1: Good, good night.